So understanding the Acts period, part nine, the wild olive graft. Now we have expressed the belief that in the Acts period, the focus of the gospel was on the Jew first and on the Jew primarily. Yet we admit there also was a small company of Gentiles who believed and who were allowed into the company of Acts period believers along with the Jews, the majority of Jews, Israelites who believed. So we're going to leave off by asking this question, what was the position of these Gentile believers during the Acts period? And why were they allowed in? And how were they allowed in? And so what exactly was the position of the Gentile Acts period believers? Now for the Gentile Acts period believers, it, it starts off, of course, with the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Where we read, starting in verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So here we read about this man Cornelius and we read his pedigree. That this was a man who feared God, he respected and reverenced the God he knew to exist with all his house. He did what he knew to be right. He worked righteousness. He gave alms to the poor Israelites around him. And he always prayed to the true God. He didn't pray to the true God one day and idols the next. He only prayed to the true God. Now verse 3, he saw in a vision evidently, plainly, unmistakably, about the ninth hour of the day, about three in the afternoon, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. So he receives these instructions, but he's told that his prayers and his gifts to the poor Israelites had come up before God. And that was why God was sending this to him. Now meanwhile, Peter is prepared. For, his, for the arrival of his messengers. In verse 9, On the morrow as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, about noon. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. So he has this vision three times of this sheet containing all these unclean animals, saying, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord, I've never eaten unclean things. Well, what God has cleansed, don't call common or unclean. But was the point of that vision really food? See, I, I've had people say, see, that vision shows us that from then on, clean and unclean laws are obsolete. No, this wasn't about food. This was about people. In chapter 10 and verse 24, And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. 
And he, as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, Ye know how that it is an unlawful thing, and that really means contrary to custom, not law. It's an unlawful thing, uh, not a customary thing, for a man who is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. See, that vision was about men. That was the meaning of it. The food represented men. It wasn't doing away with the clean and unclean laws. It was saying something about people. Don't call them common or unclean. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying as soon as I was sent for. But then notice what he says. I ask therefore, for what intent have you sent for me? Peter doesn't say, oh, you must have sent because you want to hear the gospel. Here it is. No, see, in Peter's mind, he knows the gospel is sent to Jews. The word of salvation is for the Jews. So even though he's come to Cornelius, God has sent him. He knows he's supposed to come. He doesn't walk in figuring, well, I must be going to preach the gospel now. Because, well, no, the gospel isn't for Gentiles. Why am I sent here? I have no idea. But after Cornelius explained what had happened with the angel, Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So Peter says, Oh, I realize now God accepts anyone from any nation who respects the God he knows exists and does what he knows to be right that God would want him to do. Such a person is accepted with God. Now Peter, as he did proclaim, the Holy Spirit inspired him, and he did proclaim the gospel to him. We read in verse 44, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles, the nations, in this case, what we would call Gentiles, also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water? These who have, who have received the Spirit as we did. So, this was the first case we have in Acts of any Gentile believing. And it was unexpected. Peter wasn't expecting it. Even when he got to Cornelius' house, he wasn't expecting to proclaim the gospel there. Because the gospel was to Jews. Now, years later, some six years at least later, when we get to what's commonly called the Jerusalem Council, and they're discussing whether or not Paul's ministry among the Gentiles was legitimate. We read in Acts chapter 15 and verse 7, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know that how a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles, by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now see, a lot of people get this idea that once Peter went to this one Gentile household of Cornelius, Peter realized, oh, the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles now. And so from then on, Peter went out preaching to Gentiles and Jews equally. But no, see here when, when they're questioning Paul's ministry, Paul had, had proclaimed to Gentiles, was that legitimate? And should the Gentiles have to keep the law or they can't be saved? Peter goes back years to the household of Cornelius. 
He doesn't say, well, come on, guys, I've been preaching to Gentiles all along. No, he says, a good while ago, God sent a word to some Gentiles through me. A good while ago, years back. Like I said, maybe about six years back, he sent the word to Gentiles through me. He hasn't been preaching to Gentiles ever since. He hasn't been carrying the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. After Cornelius, he went right back to carrying it just to Jews. And Paul going to Gentiles now is the first time since Cornelius that anyone has gone to Gentiles. Now as far as Paul going to Gentiles, we only have in Acts three specific examples where we know that he did. Now there might have been others, but these are the only three we know for sure. Where especially when we realize, as Andy and Ginny were talking about in their last talk, that a Greek wasn't necessarily a Gentile. Probably wasn't. And the three times we read about are, first of all, in Acts chapter 13 in Pisidian Antioch, where in verse 26 we read that Paul, in his proclamation in the synagogue there, he says, Men and brethren, children, and that should be sons, sons of the stock of Abraham, representatives of Abraham's family, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Now because there's some debate about who is this, those who are among you who fear God, uh, see, there, out among the nations, there were Gentiles who got sick of paganism. Paganism with all its hedonism and its orgies and its just disgusting religious practices. There were some Gentiles who got sick of all that and said, this doesn't seem much like, like, a, like a fine form of religion to me. And then they would see in these Jews with their one God and their religion of righteousness, uh, the law, uh, they would see something better. But see, the problem is, it's one thing to be attracted to the God of Israel. It's another to actually start to keep the law, especially if you're a full-grown man and have to do this circumcision thing. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing when the baby's eight days old to do the circumcision. It's another when you're a full-grown man to do circumcision. And that, that's some serious, uh, serious step. And not to mention for some of them to actually become, it's one thing to sit and listen to the Jews, it's another to become a Jew. Uh, what, what are all your, your co-workers and, and friends and people you do business with going to think? So there were Gentiles who would come and would sit on the outskirts and listen in to the Jew service and would admire and fear the God of Israel, but wouldn't take that step to actually become an Israelite. But to actually be among the Israelites... To actually be able to go into the synagogue, not sit off to the side, you had to become a proselyte. You had to get circumcised. You had to start to keep the law. So when he says, those among you who fear God, he's not talking about those sitting in the seats off to the side listening in. They are not included. It's only those Gentiles who have actually taken the step to be among them and keep the law that he says this salvation is, is apostello, it's authorized to you. But then we see in verse 40, 42, and you know, modern Christians don't like this, and, and they've found some manuscripts that change this and want to change it in the modern translations. Uh, but I think the way it reads in King James is right. When the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. See, there was only one group of people who heard the message, and yet it wasn't for them. And it, it was only the Gentiles, the nation, those those sitting on the edge that Paul had purposely excluded, the ones who weren't among them, the God-fearers who were still sitting out on the edge because they didn't keep the law. The message wasn't for them, and Paul had particularly said it wasn't for them. But they come to Paul and say, that great, that's great, Paul. Couldn't you have a message for us next time? 
Well, well, I don't think Paul promised anything. But then we see that verse 44, the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. So all these Gentiles went out and told all their friends, hey, come and listen to this. When the Jews saw the multitudes, and I don't think they had ever seen this much interest among the Gentiles before. So they were jealous. They were filled with envy. I was never this popular. And so they spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of Ionian life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, those ones on the outside who had been hoping to hear a message this week, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to Ionian life believed. So when the Jews reject, Paul and Barnabas turned to these Gentiles who had been interested and brought all their friends, and some of them believed and became believers. But, like I said before, Acts 14.1, when they went to Iconium, they both went together into the synagogue of the Jews, went right back to the Jews in the next city. Then in Acts 17, we have a little bit different case, because Acts 17, we don't have any word of Jews rejecting first before Paul goes to Gentiles. But in Acts 17 and verse 16, we read, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Here's this great historical city of Athens uh, with, with all its reputation for learning, and yet these supposedly intelligent cream-of-the-crop people are just immersed deeply in this idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, went there first like always, but then and with the devout persons, like the, the God-fearing Gentiles, but then in the market daily with them that met with him. So he went out and preached in the common square where our Gentiles could hear him. And the result was certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and they were interested. Some said, what will this babbler say? They dismissed it. Others, some, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. See, they were so mixed up, they thought resurrection was a god. So, verse 19, they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. Because they were always looking for some new philosophy to listen to and, and rate. So here he speaks to Gentiles, and the result in verse 34 is that a lot of them just dismiss it. But howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. These would be Gentile men, among which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, two very prominent people, and others with them. So here we have some Gentiles, believe, from the Areopagus, the center of, of the Gentile thought at the time in the world. And then finally, we have Gentiles in Corinth. Again, in Acts 18, verses five, verse 5, When Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go on to the nations, the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. 
And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his hosts. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So after the Jews rejected and opposed what he was saying, he went next door to the synagogue. And then some from the synagogue, Crispus, the chief ruler, came to believe. And many Corinthians believed. And, of course, some of these would have been Gentiles. So these are four specific cases where I can mark out that we see Gentiles believing. And I don't see any other specific case where I can prove someone was a Gentile. It talks about Greeks, like I said. But I tend to think that those were usually Israelites living the Greek lifestyle. So these four instances we know of Gentiles believing. But what, might I ask, was this position, the position of these Gentile believers all about? Why? Why did God have Peter go to Cornelius? I mean, in 2020 hindsight, it was kind of great for setting up the dispensation of grace, but I, I don't want to give that explanation in the context of the Acts period. The Acts period is all about heading for the kingdom. So what point, what purpose did these Gentiles have, and what position did they have once they became believers? So, to consider that, we are going to look at Romans chapter 11. And I actually passed out with the notes I passed out to you. I passed out on page 5. I passed out the Otis Q. Sellers resultant version of Romans 11, which is the version I'm going to be reading from. So if you want to read exactly what I'm reading rather than the version you have in your Bible, you can look at that page 5 of the notes, and I have the resultant version of Romans 11. So in Romans 11 and verse 1, Paul writes, I ask then, does God thrust away his people? May it not be coming to that. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Of course, Paul himself was an Israelite. God has not thrust away his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in speaking of Elijah when he interceded with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have put your prophets to death and have overthrown your altars and I am left alone and they seek my soul. But what was the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who do not bow the knee to Baal. Even so then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the choice of grace. So he says, is God thrusting away his people at this time? Is God putting them away? And his answer is, no, he's not. Look at me, here I am God's primary minister carrying the gospel at this point, and I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm proof that God hasn't thrust away his people. If anything proves it, the fact that I'm Paul is, is the one out there working proves it. So he says, verse 6, Now if it is by grace, it is no longer determined by works, otherwise grace would be grace no longer. But if it is through works, it is no longer determined by grace, else work is no longer work. How then does the matter stand? That which Israel seeks after, this she has not obtained. But the chosen have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. This is even as it is written, God hath given them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see nothing with, and ears to hear nothing with, even to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare, and a mesh, and a trap, and a recompense unto them. Let darkness come over their eyes, that they may be unable to see, and bow their backs continually. So he talks about the, the chosen, the traditional word is elect, but it just means the chosen, that the chosen were being saved and the rest were being hardened. 
So he brings up this matter of some being hardened. Well, the chosen are being saved. But then he asks this significant question in verse 11. I ask, however, have they tripped that they should fall? May it not be coming to that. But rather, through their offense, salvation has come to the nations to provoke them to jealousy. If, moreover, their offense is the enriching of the world, and if their diminishing becomes the enriching of the nations, how much more shall their fullness be? So Paul says Israel didn't trip so that they would fall, so that they would fall completely, as we said, perish, fail. No, let not my reasoning come to that. May it, not, may it never be. But he says through their offense, through their lapse, salvation is coming to the nations, but it's to provoke the Israelites who are lapsing to jealousy. So these Gentiles being saved, he says the focus is not on them. And that explains why in Pisidian Antioch he wouldn't proclaim to the Gentiles until the Jews had rejected. Then he would proclaim to Gentiles because he was trying to provoke Jews to jealousy. That was the point of it. That was what he was trying to accomplish. It wasn't just for the Gentiles' sake alone. Now it was nice for the Gentiles, but it wasn't for their sake alone. It was to provoke Israelites to jealousy. The focus of their salvation was not on these Gentiles themselves. It was on the Israelites that God was seeking to provoke to believe. So then verse 13, Now to you the nations I say, inasmuch as I am the commissioned one of the nations, I will glorify my service, if somehow I should provoke to jealousy those of my flesh, and should deliver some of them. For if their loss has brought about this change in the system, what will the receiving of them be but life from among the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the boughs are also. So he says, by carrying the gospel to the nations, as the commission wanted to the nations, Paul says, I'm, I'm glorifying my service because if somehow I should provoke to jealousy those of my flesh in order to save some of them. So he is attempting to provoke Israelite to, to jealousy by proclaiming to Gentiles. So the question arises, did this work? Did Paul going to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles ever actually provoke any Jews to jealousy and cause them to believe when they wouldn't have otherwise? And I've heard some people say, this, this doesn't seem to ever work. doesn't seem to me it ever worked. It didn't provoke the Jews to jealousy. They didn't get jealous. It didn't work. Well, just philosophically, even before we look into the evidence, philosophically, I would expect that if God set out to accomplish something, if he had a plan and he set out to do a work, I would expect that, that, that to work, for that to accomplish what he, what he set out to do, that it wouldn't fail. And particularly after the cross, you know, the cross being the great turning point, I look at before the cross as being an example of man fails in spite of everything God does to cause us to succeed. And then the, the cross and the resurrection is the great turning point. And from then on, I say God succeeds in spite of all man's failure. So I call, I call the cross the turning point, and, and we're on the road back up. And God's plans after the cross all succeed in spite of all man tries to do to make him fail. They succeed anyway. So I think all God's plans after the cross especially always succeed. But do we have any examples of Scripture we can give of this working? Well, let's go back to Acts 18, which was the last one we were in. Maybe you're, you're still there in your Bible. 
In Acts 18, remember we had it in verse 6 that he shook his raiment, said, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. I'm going to the Gentiles. He went next door to the house of justice. One that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. He was one of these God-fearing Gentiles. His house was right next door to the synagogue. And then we read, right after Paul went next door to the synagogue to go to the Gentiles, that Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. Now I would suggest that it's significant that it says that there. It doesn't say that before Paul went to the Gentiles. And I don't think he's going back and reviewing. I think he's saying that happened at this point. When Paul left the synagogue and left the Jews and went to the Gentiles, that caused Crispus to wake up. He said, wait a minute here. I'm the Jew. I'm the one who's supposed to have hope in Messiah. I'm the one who's supposed to have the promise of God's coming kingdom and everything. Here, here Paul is taking this promise to Gentiles and I'm going to miss out on it. And he followed Paul next door and took his household with them and they believed. See, I think Crispus was provoked to jealousy. Paul leaving the synagogue caused him to wake up. Whereas before he'd just been, he'd just been opposing it. He'd been against it. Now when Paul went to the Gentiles, he woke up and he appears to be provoked to jealousy to me. But that's not all. If we go on to Paul's, after he continued there a year and six months, when he was dragged before the judgment seat in verse 12, when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. He says, I'm a Greek. Why would I care about your Jewish law? He says, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, now, wait a minute. I thought Crispus was the chief ruler of the synagogue. Well, obviously, in the year and a half since Crispus became a believer, the synagogue, who had rejected Paul, kicked him out and made somebody else the chief ruler of their synagogue. And that was this Sosthenes. So he was the new chief ruler of the synagogue after, after they probably removed Crispus. They took him and beat him before the judgment seat as being part of this party of Jews who had been condemning Paul, trying to get Gallio to condemn him. Beat Sosthenes before the judgment seat. But what if we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? And look at first one, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This, this same group, of course, Corinth, that we were reading about in Acts chapter 18. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 1 says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians with a man named Sosthenes. Now, could this be the same Sosthenes? Now, I can't prove it. But the Sosthenes, who was a chief ruler of the synagogue, had to be a very prominent Sosthenes, a very important Sosthenes, a well-known Sosthenes in Corinth. And whoever one, Paul's companion was, whom Paul chose as being important enough to write 1 Corinthians with, had to also be very important and very well-known in Corinth. Could it be that the next chief ruler of the synagogue also got provoked to jealousy and became a believer? Not right away, but later on. And so much so that he joined with Paul and later wrote 1 Corinthians with him. 
Now, I can't prove it. I can't prove they're the same Sosthenes just because they had the same name. But it looks to me like it could be that the next ruler of the synagogue got provoked to jealousy as well and joined Paul. And then Paul wrote 1 Corinthians with him. So I think that we definitely have evidence, at least in Corinth, that this matter of provoking certain Jews to jealousy after Paul turned to the Gentiles appears to have worked. Well, back to Romans chapter 11. And verse 17. He says, Now if some of the branches are broken off, and you, being a wild olive, are grafted in among them, and have become a joint partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So here we have this example of branches being broken off and grafted of a wild olive and being grafted into a cultivated olive. Now there was a time when there were people who would criticize the Bible for this. They would say, this isn't how you do it. You don't graft wild olive branches into a, into a cultivated olive. See, this is what you do. You take a cultivated olive branch and you graft it into a wild olive tree that wild olives produce bad olives. You don't want it, the olives from a wild olive tree. But you graft your cultivated branch into the wild olive and then you use the wild olive tree to, to produce good olives off this cultivated branch. But why in the world would anyone want to graft a wild olive that doesn't produce good olives into a good olive tree? It'd just be a wasted branch because it wouldn't give you any good olives. So they said, this is ridiculous. This isn't how you do it. This is backwards. You don't graft wild olive branches into a cultivated olive. Well, then they discovered an ancient book on horticulture written around the same time Paul wrote Romans. And this ancient book on horticulture, it said this about olive trees. See, the thing you have to understand about olive trees is that, if you, is that they are very, very long-lived trees. And if you plant an olive tree, you are not planting it for yourself because you're never going to see any olives off of it. You're not planting it for your kids because your kids are never going to see any olives off it. You're planting it for your grandkids because it's in their days that they'll finally start getting olives off that olive tree. So olive trees are very slow growing, very slow to produce, and then they produce for a long time. But if you have an olive tree and it's starting to taper off, it's starting to get old, it's starting to not produce, you don't want to cut that tree down and start over. <laughs> you don't want to because, like I said, you're never going to see the next tree down the line give you any olives. So if there's any way you can provoke that tree to start producing again, you want to do that. You don't want to cut down that tree and start over. So this said, one, one way you can do this is take a wild olive branch from a, from a young, healthy, thriving wild olive tree and you graft it into that old olive tree that's starting to not produce. And then, then, then the vigor and life in that wild olive branch can actually invigorate that old olive tree so that it will start producing olives kind of based off the, off the vigor and the life in this wild olive branch. So that's one thing you do to try to stimulate an olive tree that's started to not produce. Well then, if that doesn't work, you can take another branch, you know, you cut off one of its branches, put a wild olive branch in its place, try again. If that doesn't work, cut off another branch, take a wild olive branch, graft it in its place, try again. If that doesn't work, you cut down the tree because now you're turning it into a wild olive. <laughs> and, uh, 
it's, you're not going to get any good olives. So, but this is a way to try to get an old, failing olive tree to start producing again. To not have to start over and, and your grandkids will someday get olives. So, this is what Paul is comparing them to. A wild olive branch grafted into Israel's olive tree to try to get it to produce. And see, when you, when you understand that that's, that's what this whole grafting wild branches is in, Paul, off this very modern book at the day he wrote, they were familiar with this idea, and he says that's what God is doing. But he says to them, Be not boasting over the branches. However, if you boast, do not forget that you do not bear the root, but the root bears you. You will say then, The branches have been broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. Because of the unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand in your faith. Do not be puffed up with pride, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, neither will he be sparing you. See then the kindness and severity of God upon those who have fallen severity, but upon you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So here he talks to the wild olive branches, the Gentiles. Those who didn't produce good olives, you wouldn't expect them to produce good olives, but they're grafted into Israel's olive tree to try to provoke the tree to produce good olives. He warns them, you are subservient to the olive tree. You are now a branch in Israel's olive tree. Understand, you are dependent on Israel for your position, for everything. You're getting your life through that tree now. Don't boast against the tree now that you're a branch of it. Don't boast against the tree now that you're a branch of it. That doesn't make any sense. Because you're dependent on that tree for your position, for everything. Now this is is very, very different from the position of the believer, the Gentile believer in Christ today. And on the back of that sheet, I gave you the resultant version of Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. Where Paul writes, Of this grace, I, Paul, the bound one of Christ Jesus, for you of the nations, assuming that you surely hear of the administration of the grace of God, which is given to me for you. For by revelation the secret is made known to me, even as I have written before in brief, by which you reading are able to apprehend my understanding in the secret of Christ, which secret in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. In spirit, the nations are to be joint enjoyers of a portion, joint bodies, and joint partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the good message. So this describes the nations, all nations, as being joint and equal. And so the question is, are Gentile believers today subservient wild olive branches grafted into Israel's good olive tree and entirely dependent on Israel for everything? Or are believers today joint and equal no matter what nation you're from? No matter what your background, you believe in Christ, you're joint and equal with every other believer, Israelite or un-Israelite or whatever. No, see, Ephesians 3 is truth for today. We are not subservient branches in Israel's olive tree. We are joint and equal. And these are very, very different positions. And as I said before, this is so different that I don't believe Romans 11 and Ephesians 3 could be true of the same people at the same time. And they are. Romans 11 was true of the Acts period Gentile believers. And Ephesians 3 is true of Gentile 
and Jewish believers today. And this shows us clearly the Acts 28-28 dividing line. Because, of course, Romans is before that dividing line, Ephesians is after. And the positions of Gentiles in Acts was they were subservient to Israel. Uh, they were under Israel. They were dependent on Israel for everything. And the position of the Gentiles today is that we're equal. We're all equal, including Israel. We're all equal if, as believers in Christ. All nations are equal who are believers today. Now in Romans 11 and verse 23, back to Romans 11, he says, Moreover, if they turn from their unbelief, they too will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut from that, which by nature is a wild olive tree, and contrary to nature were grafted into the good olive tree, how much rather shall these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I am not willing for you to be ignorant of this secret, brethren, lest you should attribute superior wisdom to yourselves, that partial blindness has fallen upon Israel until the fullness of the nation shall come in. And so all Israel shall be rescued and made safe. According as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove all ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he says, God is able to graft these Israelite branches that he's cut out to put you wild olive branches in. He's able to graft them back in again as well. And he says, a partial blindness has happened to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in. Now this brings up a couple of interesting facts that we need to consider. And this relates to what we talked about in our propositions of Acts, this idea that believing in the Acts period was a one-time proposition. That you had one chance to believe, and if you didn't believe, you had no further chances. And the passage that really shows us this is Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And I believe Hebrews was written considerably before Romans. But he says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, this passage is one that those who want to say that salvation is not safe and secure, that you can be saved one day and lose your salvation the next, they like to turn to this passage to try to prove that. But the problem is that, that those who say you can lose your salvation always say that, that you can then turn and, and repent and, and pray to God again and, and get saved again, get saved over again. But how in the world can you apply this passage to that idea when this passage says, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. If this is talking about losing your salvation, it would say, you get one shot at salvation, and if you lose it, sorry, you're out. You can't get resaved. You can't come back. You might as well give up because you're out for good. So, no, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about nothing today. This is talking about something in the Acts period. And those who say this means you can lose your salvation, that, that's just wrong. But see, what this is talking about is what happened to someone when the gospel was proclaimed to them in the Acts period. They are enlightened. 
God's Holy Spirit turns on the light to show them the truth. See, I can proclaim the gospel to someone, and I don't know if it got through to them or not. I don't know if they were enlightened or if their, blind, their prejudices blinded them to it and they didn't hear it. They tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit, when I speak, I hope the Holy Spirit is working with me. When the apostles spoke, they knew the Holy Spirit was working with them. He was doing it every time. They tasted the good word of God. And again, the gospel, as the apostles were proclaimed, it was always the word of God. It wasn't mixed in with a lot of error, like when a lot of people proclaim the gospel today. And they give some truths, like you need to believe in Christ, and he died for you and rose again. But then they give other things, like you need to escape from going to hell and stuff like that. They mix in errors with the truth. But no, this was, this was the good word of God given inspired. He was completely right. There was no error mixed in. And then they also tasted the powers of the eon to come, the powers of the kingdom. Uh, they saw miracles of healing. They saw signs and wonders that proved the gospel was true. There was no believing without seeing. It was proven to them. So after all this enlightenment and this perfectly inspired message and these powerful signs that proved it, he says, if they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So he was like, through all this enlightenment of the Spirit and inspired message, and signs proving it, it was like Christ was actually set up in front of them being crucified and 100% proven to them that this had happened. And if after Christ was set up as crucified in front of them and proven, and they still spit on him and said, no, I don't want him, well, to present him to them again would be like setting Christ up again and crucifying him all over again. He says, it's impossible, you can't do it. Well, if that's the case, if you can't present Christ again, if it's impossible once they've rejected for it to be presented to them again, then how could anybody get provoked to jealousy? Because once they rejected, it would have been all over, right? How could anybody get provoked to jealousy then? They got their one chance, they blew it, they're gone. How could they get provoked to jealousy? Well, it's impossible to bring them back. But Paul says in Romans 11.25, I tell you a secret not revealed before. That's what a, a mystery is in Scripture. It's not something mysterious you have to search out and figure out. It's something never revealed before, but revealing now. The secret is that partial blindness has fallen upon Israel until the fullness of the nations become in. See, this is what happens. Is God has enlightened these people. They've seen the light. They've seen the proofs. And yet they start to reject. Start to harden their hearts against it. Start to say no. And it's like they're, they're raising their fist to shake it against God and say no, and God casts a pall of blindness over their eyes. He blinds them. He doesn't let them go through with it, through with their final rejection. He, he, he casts partial blindness upon them. So they're partially blinded and not allowed to finish that process of rejection. So ready to reject, blindness falls, keeping them from taking that final step of rejecting in the light. See, that's what they would have been doing if he hadn't blinded them. Because they had been enlightened, they would have been rejecting as enlightened, and there's no coming back from that. But suddenly he cuts off the light and blinds them. So if they're shaking their fists, they're doing it in the dark, they're not enlightened, they're partially blinded. So that he could give them time to be provoked to jealousy, and then remove that partial blindness, and maybe this time 
once they see it again. And once they're, they're, they finish making their decision, maybe this time they'll have reconsidered. So see, see, God did this in order to give these Jews another chance when they shouldn't have been able to get another chance, to give them another chance by blinding them before they could squander their first chance. Now, another aspect of this he reveals in Romans 11.25 is that God was also doing this because he wanted a Gentile company in among the Acts period Israelite believers. God wanted this. He wanted there to be certain Gentiles who would get grafted into Israel's company and be a Gentile contingent of an Israelite company. And he says, Partial blindness has fallen upon Israel until the fullness of the nation shall come in. So God, and that idea of fullness is almost the idea of a full number. He says, I want a number. It's a small number, I think. Not a, not a large number, not a huge number. But a number of Gentiles he wants in the Israelite company. He has some Gentiles he wants to reach. He wants to graciously bring in. So this gives him not only an opportunity to have grace on these Jews by stopping them from taking the final step of rejection and giving them another chance later when he removes their partial blindness, but it also gives these Gentiles an opportunity to come in and receive grace as well when God brings them into the company of Israelites. But then he says in verse 26, And so all Israel shall be rescued and made safe. So once that, once that partial blindness is removed, then Israel can be rescued and made safe, hopefully including some Jews who might have rejected otherwise but now are provoked to jealousy and can believe. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, their sin of having started to reject can be taken away when they are provoked to jealousy and believe. He says, verse 28, As touching the gospel, indeed, they are enemies because of you, these partially blinded Jews. But as to choice, they are beloved because of the fathers. God loves them because they're Israelites. So he wants to give them every opportunity, even though they're becoming enemies through their partial blindness. For God's gifts and callings are without regret. For just as you were formerly disobedient toward God, you Gentiles, yet now have obtained mercy by their disobedience, when they refused to believe, they disobeyed, you got mercy. Even so, these also are disobedient toward this mercy of yours, that now they also may be shown mercy. That is, when their partial blindness is taken away, and they have the opportunity to maybe not finish going through with their rejection, and actually be provoked to jealousy and believe. For God has shut up all up together in disobedience, that he might be merciful to all. His object is to be able to show mercy, his mercy to as many as possible, and to keep as few as possible those who rejected and had to be cut out. So his goal was mercy to all, mercy to Gentiles, mercy to Jews, mercy to those Jews who started to reject, who he blinded, partially blinded, in hopes that they would be provoked to jealousy and, and still yet receive mercy. So then he says, verse 33, this, this whole merciful scheme of God calls out one of Paul's doxologies here. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How inscrutable are his judgments and untraceable his ways! For who has come to know the mind of the Lord? Or who has come to be his advisor? Or who gives to him first and will be repaid by him? For out of him and through him and for him are all these, to him be glory for the eons. Amen.
So Paul, in awe of God's wisdom and God's judgments, and ultimately God's mercy, he finishes with this doxology to the great wisdom and knowledge of God. So in asking, what was the purpose and the point and the position of the Gentile believers in the Acts period? I would say they were a small company, but they were important in the plans of God. Firstly, he had a full company of Gentiles in mind. He wanted to be grafted into Israel's olive tree, to be a Gentile contingent of the Israelite, largely Israelite community of ex-period believers. But then, he also desired to provoke to jealousy certain Jews, whom he had partially blinded while they were in the process of rejecting, in order to give them a chance to reconsider, and when he removes the partial blindness, perhaps make a different decision. His goal in this was to have mercy on all, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, God's work today no longer includes things like grafting. It no longer includes partial hardening. It no longer includes provoking to jealousy. Instead, his dispensation of grace displays to everyone his desire to show grace and mercy to the world. But this certainly gives us an example of God's mercy and God's desire to save as many as he can. So the question for each of us is, have we allowed God's grace and mercy to perform its work in our own hearts? And I pray that we all have.